Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse number 32, down to the end of the chapter, as we look at the summation of what the writer of Hebrews is saying to us about what true faith looks like. Let me read it to you. Hebrews 11, verse number 32. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release, so that they might obtain a better resurrection, and others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted they were put to death with the sword they went about in sheepskins in goatskins being destitute afflicted ill-treated men of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground what a group of individuals right the summation centers around three points faith's conquest faith's cost and faith's compensation. In other words, faith always wins, right? But the faith that wins always costs you something. And we're going to see that. And the, but the faith that costs you something, the compensation is so far out of this world, it's worth the loss you face in this life. And so the writer of Hebrews wants to sum everything up by rattling off all these names and their accomplishments, and yet showing you the cost that they had to go through because they lived a life of trusting obedience. It is a fabulous summation of a chapter that we have spent well over 20 weeks studying as you look at the different individuals in the chapter. But last week we began with faith's conquest, because 1 John 5, 4 says, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith right? And we spent some time in 1 John 5 looking at the fact that it's the faith that causes us to conquer. It's not my faith. It's the faith that God gifts me. It's the faith that God grants me. Remember, faith is a gift, right? We trust and obey the word of the Lord, but we can only do that because he gifts us faith, the faith to believe. And the writer of Hebrews says, what more can I say? What more can I say? And he rattles off all these names, because he, he means to say it this way. What more evidence can I give you than the evidence I've already given you? That is, all these people who lived a life of faith evidenced the fact that they truly trusted and obeyed their God. You see, faith always works. Faith is the root. Works are the fruit, right? Works are the fruit of the faith that believes in the true and living God. And these individuals had faith to believe that everything God said was absolutely true. So they behaved, or they believed absolutely in what God said, and then behaved accordingly to all that God said. That's what faith is, trusting obedience. He says, what more can I say? The evidence is in. It's clear. Because faith manifests itself. We can look at James chapter 2. We did that with Rahab, right? You have a prostitute, you have a patriarch, Abraham. Both of them prove their faith by their works. 
you can go to Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the sower and the soil. There's only one soil that produces fruit. Two of the other three look like they're saved, but really aren't because they produce no fruit. But the fourth soil produces fruit, some 30-fold, some 60-fold, some 100-fold. Why? Because faith works. Faith is seen. Faith is evident. Faith is clearly seen. That's what the writer's saying. Look, let me tell you something. Faith is so obvious, you don't miss it. Now, having said that, please understand that none of the people in Hebrews 11 are without fail or failure, without faults, or without flaws. None of them are. In fact, he lists Gideon, right, who sinned against God when he had wanted God to do something unique, so he made an ephod and caused Israel to sin. But yet he was a a mighty warrior for God. Samson, he was promiscuous, right? He had all kinds of problems. Women were his downfall, but yet he was used by God to be a great judge in Israel's history. David, he's listed. He was an adulterer, a liar, a murderer, a thief, but he was Israel's greatest king. Figure that one out. That's the grace of Almighty God. But you see, so none of them are are without failure. None of them without faults, and none of them without flaws. But Hebrews 11 is not about that. It's about their faith, that they believed and they trusted God, and they followed God amidst difficult times. That's important for all of us to understand because it's not about perfection. It's always about progression. It's not about sinlessness. It's about blamelessness. It's about trusting God, following God, and obeying God because none of us perfectly do that day in and day out. But the habit pattern of the people in Hebrews 11 was that we're going to trust and we're going to obey. We're going to believe absolutely and behave accordingly. That was their life. Now, this is important. Why? Because, you see, faith is something we pursue. Let me, let me show this to you. Turn with me to 1 Timothy 6 for a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 6. I want you to understand this because this is crucial to every one of us. Because we're not perfect and we sin, we all have our flaws, we all have our failures, and yet we are to pursue faith. So Paul is talking about the man of God, Right? He talks about the man of God. Remember, Timothy is the only person in the New Testament called the man of God. It's not that Paul wasn't a man of God. He was. It wasn't that Stephen wasn't a man of God or the apostles weren't men of God. They were. They just weren't specifically called a man of God. The only person in the New Testament called a man of God is young Timothy. And Paul tells him in 1 Timothy 6, but flee from these things, you man of God. What things? Well, in the context, it's the love of money because that's the root of all kinds of evil. You can't be God's man and money's man. You can't serve both. So he says, you flee from these things, young Timothy. Look what he says. And pursue righteousness, godliness. What's the next word? Faith. Pursue it. The word pursue is a hunting term. It means to track it down. He says, Timothy, you need to pursue faith. You've got to hunt faith down. You've got to track it down. You've got to go after faith, Timothy. You've got to pursue 
trusting God. You've got to pursue obeying God. This is your lifelong pursuit. Yes, you pursue righteousness. Yes, you pursue godliness. But you must continue to pursue trusting God, believing in God, because there's all kinds of things that come against you that get you to put your trust elsewhere. So how do you best do that? Ah, turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, chapter 3. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul talks about perilous times. Perilous times are, are, is a word that's used in, in, in Mark's gospel in chapter 8 to talk about the land of the Gerasenes and the man that was filled with demons, right? <clears throat> so he's going to explain to you that in the last days, which is the days from the first coming of the Messiah to the second coming of the Messiah, those days in between that, <clears throat> in the last days there will be perilous times. The world is going to be like Satan's graveyard. And this is how he describes it. He says, but realize this, in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. Boy, that's an understatement, is it not? Lovers of self and lovers of money? I mean, that's the way we characterize our, our country. And then it says, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents. Wow, that's last day's prophecy, right? Ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good. God is good. You hate God. God's word is good. They hate God's word. They hate anything that's good. Treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. He's characterizing end times. He's characterizing perilous times, right? So how do we handle perilous times? How do we handle the end times? How do we live in light of what we are facing every single day where people's are, people are lovers of pleasure, lovers of God, lovers of themselves, not lovers of God, excuse me, lovers of themselves and not wanting to follow God? What do you do? Paul tells Timothy, verse 10, Now you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, and, what's the next word? Faith. How do you pursue faith? How do you constantly keep a perspective on hunting down faith? You find a mature person in your church who lives a life of faith, and you follow them. That's it. Just look to them and follow them. That's all you got to do. Paul says, pattern your life after me. He says this, he says, you follow my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, and then he talks about persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch. He talks about the conquest of faith. He talks about the cost of faith. It's all right there. And then he ends up talking about the compensations of faith as he goes on in 2 Timothy chapter 4 because he follows the pattern of Hebrews chapter 11. Same thing. The Bible says the same thing over and over and over again. Just comes at it from different perspectives, from different viewpoints, from different people. But it's all the same thing. Paul says, Timothy, pattern your life after my faith. You saw how I trusted God amidst persecutions. You saw how I trusted God during difficult times. You saw how I follow God. Just follow my trusting obedience. And you'll learn to trust and obey as I did. That's it. Listen, Christianity is not rocket science. You don't need a Phi Beta Kappa to live the Christian life. All you got to do is follow the godly people. Follow the people in Hebrews 11. 
Look to them. See them. That's why they're there. They're examples of true saving faith, true believing faith. That's how they live their lives. Look to them. Follow them. And see, and that's what Paul says to Timothy. Timothy, I want you, you're a man of God. You pursue faith. But you pursue faith because you have patterned your life after my faith. You saw how I trusted God. Now you pursue it and do the same thing. And my prayer for you and for me is that as we've studied Hebrews 11, that would be our desire. We want to live like these people lived. We're not going to live without failure. We're not going to live without flaws, and we're not going to live without fault. But we can live a life of trusting obedience, a life of faith. And that's our pursuit, right? That's what we want to do. So what he does is he lists in faith's conquest people by name, then people by fame. By name and by fame. Can you remember that? That's easy to remember, right? It all rhymes. People by name and people by fame. So he listen. He says, Hebrews 11. He says, what more can I say? I don't know what to tell you, he says. For it fails me if I, if I tell Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, prophets. Wow. He just rattles them off. And they're not in chronological order either, right? He just rattles them off. Trying to think of people that lived the life of faith. Now listen very carefully. He rattles off people who lived the life of faith during Israel's most difficult days. This is so encouraging. This is so wonderful. Why? Because that's when people of faith need to step up the most, right? Do we live in difficult days? Right. Do we live in hardship? Yes. Are things difficult for us? Absolutely. Are they like they were in Israel? Probably not. Are they like they were with Job? Nope, not even close. But we live in perilous times, right? So our world needs people of faith. Your workplace needs people of faith. Your school needs people of faith. Wherever you live needs an example of what it means to trust and obey the true and living God. Because God has called you to live out your spiritual existence in a specific sphere of influence. And where he's called you, he has not called me. And where he's called me, he hasn't called you. But he did call you to live out your faith Live out your spiritual existence in a specific sphere of influence that God has strategically placed only you. Only you. He didn't put me at Aquinas High School where Kate is. He didn't put me at Cal State Fullerton where Harold is. He didn't put me there. He put them there. That's their sphere of existence. And that's where their spiritual influence is. That's where they live out their, their faith. And believe me, people in the, that high school, people in that college need to see faith in action. Do they not? Absolutely. So God has strategically placed individuals like yourselves in your specific place of employment, your specific school, your specific neighborhood. It's all there. God put you there. So that they would be able to see your life and say, that's what it means to trust and obey the true and living God. So you have Gideon and Samson and Jephthah and David and Samuel and the prophets. Israel needed an example. But they all came 
to minister during Israel's darkest days. Barak came to rule when Israel was at its weakest point. There was no male leadership. There was only female leadership. Gideon, Baal worship, was at its height. Samson, the Philistines, had been oppressing Israel day after day, month after month, year after year. So God raised up Samson. Jephthah, Baal worship abounded. David, King Saul, had led the nation away from God, not to God, and God raised up David to be the next king of Israel. Samuel came on the scene when the priesthood was corrupt with Eli and his sons. They needed a pure example, so God raised up Samuel. The prophets, they came on the scene, right, amidst Israel's apostasy. See, what's so great about this is the writer says, what more can I say? i got all these people I want to name, but no matter what your situation, no matter what your circumstance, God's going to raise you up to be a man or woman of faith, to live a life of trusting obedience so that everybody around you will know that's what it means to trust the true and living God. That's the challenge for every one of us, isn't it? That's our challenge every day, to live that way. So important. On top of that, isn't it interesting that no matter who you are and no matter what you do, God will use you. We got kings, we have priests, we have prophets, we have judges. But God can use anybody. I mean, everybody who was raised to a place of prominence in Hebrews 11 began as a nobody. Did they not? Look at Gideon. Gideon came from a poor family. And the Bible says in Judges 6 that he was least in his father's house. But God raised him up. And what did he do? He drove the Midianites out of Israel. God used him in a mighty way to fight 135,000 Midianites. And he had gathered together 32,000 men. He thought, wow, we got 32,000. I know we're underwhelmed here by, by the 135,000, but we have 32,000. God says, ah, you got too many guys, too many men. So God whittled it down to a simple 300 men. And the 300 men he chose had no military experience. Didn't go off to college and get a PhD. He chose them just how they drank water. That's it. Because God says, I'm going to be glorified, I'm going to be magnified by using the least of these. And instead of arming them for battle, he gives them what? Pitchers, horns, and lanterns. That's it. They're going to war with that. And they begin to scream and shout and smash the pitchers. And, and, and of the 135,000, 120,000 of them kill each other. Wow, what a way to win. Right? And the other 15,000, they flee. They run because they're scared to death. God says, I'm going to use a man least in his family. I'm going to raise him up to trust me and then he's going to conquer the Midianite nation. Wow. Isn't that great? I don't care who you are, where you're from, what your background is. Listen, if you love the Lord Jesus Christ and you're a person of faith, God's going to use you in a mighty way. And then you, you think of uh, the other ones, Barak in Judges chapter 4. <clears throat> he was an absolute nobody. In fact, a woman had to rebuke him to action before he actually did anything. And Barak confronted 
900 chariots of iron with 10,000 men and won the battle. Because God would use the least of these. Samson came from a lowly home, from the lowly tribe of Dan. But he became Israel's greatest strongman. We did a whole series on Samson. Remember him? The world's weakest strongman was Samson, right? He was a weak man, but he was the strongest man in Israel's history. And God used him to rid the nation of the Philistine nation, right? Oh, by the way, don't forget that Samson's strength was not in his hair. Although sometimes you think it is. When he, you know, when Delilah cut his hair, he lost his strength. It wasn't because of his hair that he had strength. In fact, the Bible tells us in Judges chapter 16 that Samson did not know that the Lord had departed from him. And then it says in verse 28 of Judges 16, <coughs> excuse me, then Samson called to the Lord and said, O Lord, God, please remember me and please strengthen me just this time, O God. His strength was not in his hair. His strength was in his relationship with the living God. The hair just symbolized his commitment to God. He had taken a Nazarite vow. <coughs> so please understand that about, about Samson. But God used him in a, in a great and, and mighty way. And then you have, of course, Jephthah. And Jephthah was an outcast. He was an illegitimate child, and God used him. You have, you have David. He was the last son in his family. He was the least of his sons. But he was chosen to be the king of Israel. He fought Goliath as a teenage boy and won and rid the nation of the Philistines once again. And then, of course, you have Samuel. Samuel was just a boy in the tabernacle. But his mom had given him to the Lord, committed him to the Lord. And when she'd weaned him, she gave him back to the Lord. And young Samuel would be used in a mighty way to change the nation to follow the Lord and to clean up the priesthood. The prophets, most of the prophets were lowly men that God would raise up to use to rid Israel of apostasy that was running rampant through a nation. Whether it's idolatry, whether it's immorality, whether it's apostasy, no matter what it is, God will rid his people of those things with one person of faith. And that's the point. Faith conquests. Faith wins. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. It's our trusting obedience in God. It's our believing absolutely everything he says and then behaving accordingly to all that he says. That is trusting obedience. That's what faith is. That's what they did. See? They just trusted the promise of God. They believed in what God said. And then God gave them great conquests. Look what it says. It says they subdued kingdoms. We know David subdued kingdoms, right? We understand that. The judges, they subdued kingdoms. Look Look at Samson. On top of that, they brought justice. They performed acts of righteousness. Listen, you can only do that if you're a person of faith. You can only live a righteous life if you're a person of faith. And that righteous life is going to touch everybody around you. They're going to see that. As Samuel was a righteous man, as David was a righteous man, as Jephthah was a righteous man, 
They performed acts of righteousness because they were righteous individuals. They were right with the true and living God. Because they were right with him, they could perform righteous acts that would affect everybody else, that would lead them toward the righteousness of God. That's what they did. You go on, you read about how they obtained promises. They obtained promises. When God said he was going to do something, he did it. And they were able to see what God said come true. And they obtained those promises. It's like believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, right? Confess, he who confesses Christ is Lord, right? And believes in the heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Well, what's the promise you obtain? Eternal life. Forgiveness of sins. Now you're a child of God. Because you truly believe what God says concerning eternal salvation. If Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, he is. Right? He's the only way to the Father. If there is no other name in heaven given among men whereby you must be saved, that's the name. What's the name? The name of Christ Jesus, the Savior. To believe that is to behave accordingly to that. And to realize that what God said is true. You obtain the promise of eternal life. You obtain the promise of being a child of God. You obtain the promise of the, all the inheritance, being heirs of Christ, join heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ. What a beautiful promise that God gives to his people. And they obtain promises. It says, they shut the mouths of lions. Who's that? Well, that's Daniel, right? We understand that. Remember Daniel when he shut the mouths of lions? He was thrown to the lion's den. But remember, at 16, he made a vow. Remember when we did the study of Daniel? If you weren't with us, you missed it. Because we said there's one verse, right, with one virtue that gives you all the victories you need, right? Who knows what that verse is? Anybody know? Oh, wow. Maybe you, I, I, I'll, give you, I'll give you a way out. I'll just say you weren't here on those Wednesday nights. Okay? One verse, one virtue, all the victories you need. Daniel 1.8. He would not defile himself with the king's meat. He would not compromise. He was 16 years old. He made a commitment. He would not compromise God's holy word. You make that commitment. You live that commitment. Guess what? You will obtain many victories. And guess what? Daniel did. Daniel did. Because when he was 86, the same thing was still true. Why was he thrown in the lion's den? Because he would not bow down to the king's image. Because he would not worship a false god. And so what happens? They look for an accusation. They look for something about him on the outside, something on the inside. They could find nothing. Why? Because he would not compromise. So the older he gets, the stronger he becomes. That's the way it should be in our walk with the Lord, right? The older we get, the stronger we are. Daniel was that kind of guy. Shut the mouths of lions. They threw him in the lion's den. He didn't care. And it wasn't like two or three lions walking around as you see in the pictures. No, it was a pack of lions. There were a multitude of lions in the lion's den, and they purposely didn't feed them so they could feed people to them. But the mouths of the lions were shut. Because not only did he obtain promises, his faith was victorious. He lived a life of believing in God and trusting God shutting the mouths of lions. And all through Daniel's life, outside of Joseph, Daniel is that example in the Scriptures where you see or read nothing 
about his flaws or his sins or anything. Nothing. These men were deeply committed to their God and used in a powerful way. But it goes on to say that they, <laughs> they quenched the power of fire. Well, you know, that's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Book of Daniel. These, these were men of fame. And, and they, were, they weren't afraid of the, of the fire. And the king was so upset, he tried to heat the fire seven times hotter than it normally would be. Now, listen, how much fire does it take to burn you? <laughs> Come on. The king was so angry, he had to overheat the fire to make it so hot, he wanted to just to, to incinerate them. But instead, the people who threw them in were incinerated. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they didn't even smell of smoke. Talk about obtaining a promise. Talk about gaining victory. Talk about men of true faith. They said, O king, we will not do what you say. For our God, he is able to deliver us. Now, the Lord could have killed them, and they would have been delivered into what? Glory. They still would have been delivered, right? Into glory. But they trusted their God. They weren't afraid to die. They were willing to pay the cost for their faith. That's what people of faith do. They're like the people in Revelation 12.10. They do not take any thought for their own lives. That's what people of faith do. People of faith do not care about their physical existence. They only care about living for the glory and honor of God. Read it in Revelation 12, verse number 11. That's how the people in the in tribulation are going to live their lives. They were able to overcome Satan. Why? Because of the cleansing blood of the Lamb, because of the testimony of their faith, and they did not think their lives were worthy of anything. And they overcame the evil one. That's what people of faith do. That's how they live their lives. This is the people in Hebrews 11. That's how they live their lives. And so it goes on, and it says, these words, it says, they escaped the edge of the sword. Well, there's a multitude in the Old Testament of people who escaped the edge of the sword. David will always escape Saul's sword. Saul wanted to kill him, but he was always fleeing, and God preserved him in a mighty way. The Bible says, uh, out of weakness they were made strong. Maybe Samson, maybe not. All of them were weak. All of them were lowly, but God made them strong and used them in a powerful way. It says they became valiant in fight or, or mighty in war. Mighty in war. That's great. Because all these men used by God, they weren't warriors per se, but they became mighty in war. Because God infused them with his power, his strength, his words, and they believed what God said. They simply believed what God said. And they acted upon that. And then it says, they put foreign enemies to flight. Foreign enemies fled them because they would see in them the righteousness and holiness of the living God. And it says, women receive back their dead through resurrection. Elijah, Elisha, both involved in raising. Elijah was involved in raising the son of the woman of Zarephath, and Elisha restored the son of the Shunammite. They raised him from the dead. It's the fame. 
in conquest. So faith's conquest is, is undeniable in Scripture. Believing what the Lord says. Obeying what God says. Following through on what the word of the Lord has given to us. But there is a cost. There's a great cost. And this is where you lose people. And he wants to warn these Hebrew people who are listening to this letter, listening to him speak, look, I know you're going to lose a lot when you give your life to Christ because that's what happens. And that's understandable. What did Christ say back in in Luke chapter 9? He said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. That's the gospel. Simply put, any man wants to be my disciple, he has got to deny himself, take up his cross daily, be willing to die for me daily. That's the cost. And follow me. Follow me. He says, for whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. If you're interested in preserving your own life, you're going to lose it. You can't be a follower of Christ and seek to preserve your own life. You just can't do that. He says, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. In other words, if you're willing to give your life away, I'm your savior. I'm your redeemer. I'm your deliverer. If you, if you believe that my life is more important than your life, I'm your, I'm your, I'm your savior. But if you believe that your life is more important than mine, sorry, no deliverer. You're going to die in your sins. That's the gospel. We must be willing to give our life away. You see, and, and, and the beauty about that is that when you, when you see Christ for who he is, you want to. You want, you want forgiveness. You don't want to go to hell. You realize the benefits of following Christ. That what he did for you is everything. So you say, I'll give my life away, Lord. I'll give my life to you. I want to follow you. I want to serve you. I want to honor you. Yes, Lord. Whatever you ask, I'll do. That's what Christianity is, right? (laughs) So so you go back to Matthew's gospel. And in the story of the rich young ruler, remember him? He had come to Christ and he wanted to know what good thing he must do to inherit eternal life. Remember that? The conversation he had with Christ. He calls him good teacher. Christ says, you can't call me good unless you're calling me God because only God is good, right? So if you're calling me good, you must recognize I'm God. So if you recognize I'm God, sell all that you have and follow me. Uh, too much for him. Can't do it. Too much. When to save his life, I'm willing to lose his life, Right? So the disciples are listening to this. Think of, put yourself in the, in the disciples' sandals. You're sitting here listening to Jesus con, had this conversation with this rich young ruler guy, right? And of course, in their, in their belief structure, they, he has all this money because God's blessed him. That's why he's rich. I mean, come on. That's what, that's what they're thinking. And so they hear this conversation, and the ruler goes away sad. And Peter says to him in verse 27, Behold, Lord, we have left everything and followed you. He's making a statement. Lord, we left our father. We left our future. We left our finances. We left it all. 
You said, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. So we did. We left it all. We have left everything to follow you. Because our lives don't matter. Your life does matter. So we left it all. So Peter says this, which everybody always asks, right? says, what then will there be for us? What's in it for us? That's the question everybody asks. If I leave everything, if I leave father, mother, brother, sister, if I leave my family, if I leave my fortune, if I leave my future, if I leave my family, if I'm willing to drop everything and follow Christ, what is in it for me? What do I get out of it? That's always a question we ask. We want to know. What's the benefit of following Christ? Do I get anything in this life? What's Christ say? He says, truly I say to you that you have followed me. So he affirms to Peter, yep, you're a follower of me. In the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Wow! Whoa, that's so good. In the regeneration, in the rebirth of Israel, in the salvation of Israel, when the Son of Man sits on his throne, guess what? You will sit on 12 thrones, governing the tribes of Israel. Now you know, now you know, in Acts chapter 1, after the resurrection, after the 40 days the disciples were with Christ, they ask what question? Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Why do they ask that question? Because what's in it for them is authority and rulership and sitting on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. They're thinking, wow, this is great. Lord, are you now going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Because if you are, guess what? We get our position on 12 thrones ruling over the nations of the world. That's why they asked the question. So at the end of the ministry of Christ, after he has died, risen again and before his ascension, Peter went back to fishing. Remember that story? John 21. He denied Christ three times, and so Christ asks him three questions. It's the same question. Peter, do you love me? Right? Peter, do you love me? Tend my lambs, feed my sheep. Tend my lambs, do you love me? And Peter got a little irritated with the Lord because he asked him three three times, Peter, do you love me? Because God was driving him someplace. Where was God driving him to? Well, Bible tells us. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, Peter, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this, he said, signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. God says, Peter, do you love me? Are you sure you love me? Do you really love me, Peter? Because if you do, this is where you're going. You're going to die by way of crucifixion. And he did. Church history tells us he died being hung upside down because he did not feel himself worthy to be hung right side up as his Lord and Savior was, so he was crucified upside down. He says, Peter, if you really love me, this is what's in store for you. Your faith Your faith is going to cost you. It's going to cost you dearly. It's going to cost you your life. And church history tells us that before he was crucified, his wife was crucified. And he would sit there 
rubbing her face, saying, remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. Cost. And he was crucified upside down. But Peter, being a man of questions, asked another question. And when he had spoken of this, Jesus said to him, follow me. And Peter turned around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John, following them. The one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about John? What about him? Is he going to die too? If I have to die, certainly he's got to die because he's the disciple who loves you. He's got to die too. And Jesus says this, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Peter, listen, if I want him to live till I come again, that's no concern of yours. I'm only concerned about you. You follow me. You trust and obey. And you will reap faith's conquests. But in reaping those conquests, there will always be a supreme cost. And Peter followed the Lord. How about you? Who do you follow? What is your faith like? Is it like the people in Hebrews chapter 11? My prayer for you is that that would be the case. My prayer for me is that that would be the case. That we would trust and obey. That we would believe absolutely in everything that God says, and behave accordingly. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for today, an opportunity to be in your word. What a joy it is to be challenged by the truth that's there. Lord, help us to be men and women of God, looking at these individuals in Hebrews 11, knowing, Lord, that they were not without fault or failure or flaws, but they were people of faith. They trusted and obeyed. May we Trust and obey the true and living God until you come again as you most surely will. In Jesus' name, amen.